All of the opinions expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not intended to offend or disrespect any of the parties involved. We're just two people who know how to research stuff on Google and talk about it. We don't have any legal education and therefore shouldn't be taken too seriously. So don't try to sue us. We couldn't afford to pay you anyway. Additionally, this podcast is about murder and will probably contain many other adult themes. So if that's not your thing, probably going to have a bad time. So listen at your own risk. This is the part where we shamelessly plug our social media that I can never remember. Take it away, Mike. So don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at allegedly underscore pod. Find us on Facebook at that allegedly podcast and email us at that allegedly podcast at gmail.com. So pull up a chair, grab a snicky snack, and enjoy this week's episode of Allegedly. Welcome back to Allegedly, where each week your two hosts push the limits of how much time we can spend researching and talking about murder before our mental health deteriorates. <laughs> not a lot of time is the answer. <laughs> not a lot. I'm Mike. And I'm Heather. And we break down at least once a week. <laughs> so this week we're going to be talking about, well, we are going to have three separate victims in this two-part case. It's a saga. Right. And they're all tied together by one odd man, Robert Durst. Odd is a nice way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I feel like these are going to be more about Robert Durst, just because he is the link between all of these people. Yeah, it's like, unfortunately, yeah. how could we not do it that way? He has such a weird life, and he's such a weird guy that all of the focus is placed on him like it usually is but he's just so interesting and the victims kind of fall by the wayside as usual as we like to say not a good dude not a good dude <laughs> he's icky he is very icky. <laughs> so uh, i guess we should probably dive right in then in this episode we're going to be talking about robert durst and the disappearance of his wife kathleen durst and all right, let's let's get to it. So, born Robert Allen Durst in New York City, New York, on April 12, 1943, to parents Douglas and Bernice. He was the oldest of four children. He had two younger brothers, Douglas and Tommy, and he had a younger sister, Wendy. I don't really hear too much about Tommy and Wendy after this, but yeah. Douglas is going to make an appearance or two. Yeah, Bobby and Douglas. Yeah. They're uh, very interesting, yeah. <laughs> so his father was a successful real estate investor, founding the Durst Organization in 1927, which is still alive and well today. Yeah, you can go. They actually have an active website you can go to. And yeah, to say he was successful is probably an understatement. Oh, yeah, they had like buku. Yeah, they were rich. <laughs> At just seven years old, unfortunately, Robert's mother died from a fall from the roof of their home. It's not clear as to whether or not this was an accident or a suicide. So, according to the New York Times, quote, privately the family members acknowledged that Bernice had committed suicide. But the report is that basically she accidentally overdosed on asthma medication and then, I guess, climbed up to the roof. It's to, it was an accident. for making you super drowsy? I... Isn't it? It's like a steroid, so I would think... Some of them can be, yeah. I don't know. It just seemed a little odd. But but that's not even the weirdest part. So Robert would later claim that 
his mother is standing on the roof and that his father walks him in to a bedroom at their home, I guess, where you can view the roof from the window and basically says, look at your mother on the roof. And then he watches his mother fall or jump off of this roof. So he watches his mother die. Yeah. This is something, though, that his younger brother, Douglas, refutes in either an interview or a deposition of some kind, saying that that's not really what happened. But Listen, Douglas just refuses to agree with anything that Robert says. Yeah. So I don't know how much credibility you really can give him. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say that I feel like I shouldn't believe Robert in this case, even after knowing what I know about him, because this has nothing to do with any sort of crime. This is his mother. I don't know. So Robert was considered a little odd from the very beginning. So with the added emotional and psychological damage from his mother's death and whether or not he saw it, he became just a really angry child and he required a lot of counseling. But not only was he counseled for these issues, but also issues with his younger brother, Douglas. They had an incredibly intense sibling rivalry that often ended in horrible fights. And they were seen by like a therapist for this. That's how bad they were. I mean, my brother and sisters. I mean, we all fought at some point or another, but not where our parents sent us to see a therapist. Oh, my brother and I got into, my younger brother, got into some really intense fights. I mean, he, to this day, has a calcium buildup on the center of his forehead because I, like, slammed him into this metal-framed bunk bed that we had in our bedroom as kids. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You're a monster. But we we didn't have to go see a therapist. (laughs) But you should. (laughs) We probably still should right now. But so we were talking before because there's some stuff about Robert that's kind of difficult to find where it fits in. Yeah. But this is kind of, I guess, a decent segue. Yeah. To talk about the fact that they think that Robert may have had Asperger's. And this wasn't like medically diagnosed. It wasn't anything like that. But some of this type of behavior, acting out. Or that he could have been a psychopath. Well, yeah, sure. (laughs) You know, and there are other ways that... It manifested yeah. where Asperger's is what they thought about. In my non-professional opinion, of course, after watching his interviews and things, there is something a little off, but he's still functional. So I don't find it a far stretch to believe that he did have something like, you know, a mild form of autism such as Asperger's. Right, I mean, it looks... On the spectrum. Yeah, if you watch those interviews in the jinx, right. I don't think anyone would have any yeah. problem... Seeing, you know, what people see when they think that that may be what's going on there. Yeah. But these issues were highly ignored. Oh, yeah. I mean, he grew up in a really affluential setting. That kind of thing, I guess, wouldn't be accepted by... Well, yeah, we're, and we're also talking about, you know, he was born in 1943. So he's grown oh, up yeah. in the 40s, 50s. Huge stigma around that type of stuff. Oh, yeah. So if you can avoid it, you're not going to have that diagnosed. And even if it happens to be diagnosed, mm-hmm. you're not going to tell anyone about it. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I guess like like we said in the the last episode, mental illness was seen as like you could have been, I mean, even you could have been possessed, you could have just yeah. been crazy, like that kind of thing. It was passed off a lot. And and he unfortunately is one of those cases where it wasn't really looked into that well yeah. or taken that seriously. But in any case, or moving on, Durst attended Scarsdale High School where he was described as a loner and he didn't participate in any extracurricular activities which again i think kind of aligns with asperger's right kind of socially yeah yourself right but after graduating scarsdale he then attended lehigh university where he earned a bachelor's degree in economics in 1965 and there He's described as becoming a little more social, and he was a member of the lacrosse team and a business manager for the student newspaper. So he's kind of coming out of his shell a little bit, you know. And 
after that... Well, and again, that kind of later blooming mm. is another sign of being on the spectrum because you don't have that comfortability yeah. at such a young age mm-hmm. to be able to do those types of things. Yeah, plus I think as a child, you really don't have such... You, you have even less control over your over yourself as a child. I think right. as an adult and you're a little more educated and he could probably maybe understand a little bit about what's going on. Sure. Right, so after that, he attempted to complete a doctoral program at UCLA, but he dropped out in 1969. However, in the time he spent at UCLA, Robert Wood meet a young woman named Susan Berman. Hint. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be coming up a lot in episode two. Susan Berman was an up-and-coming journalist and daughter of a prominent mob member yeah but Which even also comes into play a lot yeah yeah we're gonna look into susan berman deep yeah. <laughs> even after he dropped out of ucla he continued his platonic relationship with susan and susan is reported by many as being robert's closest friend someone that he would confide in and someone that would always have his back One of Susan's friends is quoted as saying, she quotes Susan as saying, we have a very special relationship. I've never seen it alluded to that there was any romance at all, that it was platonic, but that their relationship was, at the very least, peculiar, and that they were very attached. There's very little about Robert Durst that Mm. isn't peculiar. Right. But she'll come up later, but she is always constantly in the background, constantly in his life. But this, I don't think, affects his relationships with with women at all. Like I said, their relationship was platonic. So after Roberts returned to New York in 1969, he then decided to open a health food store in Vermont, and he purchased a home there as well. Toward the end of 1971, while staying in New York, he met a young woman, 19-year-old Kathleen McCormick. Kathleen is pretty much, you you can't find anything on Kathleen. There's really very little information. Finding her birthday, I couldn't even, I couldn't even do. She's just not on there. There are some interviews from her family members, but even in these documentaries and interviews, it doesn't tell me anything about her life prior to meeting Robert. Granted, she was 19. There's not a whole lot that she probably achieved or anything like that, but I mean, I couldn't even find any anecdotes before her time with Robert. But anyway, Kathleen McCormick was a 19-year-old. She was a tenant in one of the buildings that Robert Durst's family owned. So I guess that she had come to pay a rent check or something like that. Hmm. A little unclear. I've heard different versions. But this particular tidbit is said in pretty much everything that Robert invited Kathleen to come and live with him back at his other home in Vermont after two dates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she... Yeah, well, but she accepted it and she moved with him to Vermont at the beginning of the year in 1972. So they moved to Vermont and he's working at this health food store called All Good Things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That'll come into play later. (laughs) So the couple was described by most as opposites that kind of complemented each other. Durst was very well thought out, calculated, while Kathy was spontaneous, up for anything, very vibrant. And Robert was kind of, you know, the back. He was in the back, background, Mm -hmm. yeah. Although, he was the one running the show. That's for sure. I think Kathleen was most definitely having to do what he wanted to do. And There's a lot that that plays out that shows him as pretty controlling. Yeah. Like, he had a pretty firm grasp Mm -hmm. on all aspects of their relationship and marriage. Yeah, and and plus, and I think this is safe to say for probably a lot of relationships, Mm -hmm. he is the one 
holding the purse strings. He's got the money. What a very dated view to have, Heather. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially back then, he's going to be probably controlling most of what they do because he's the one that is bringing the money into the home. And she, at least one thing I could find about her is that they were pretty much opposites in almost every way, including financially. Her oh, yeah. family was not not at all well off. No, and she did what most people that grew up that way do once they have money. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to love and fully live out this lavish lifestyle. Oh, yeah. she. Sure we're going to talk about it a little bit more. Yeah. But yeah, mostly opposites. He was reserved. She wasn't. I mean, I could go on all day about how opposite <laughs> they were. Her brother, Kathy's brother, Jim, does describe her, quote, as evocative and interested in conversation and people. Robert was charming, beguiling, and shy, according to Kathy's brother. Yeah, he got a lot less shy when he agreed to do a 10-part series. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Robert's father apparently didn't approve of his son's ventures as a private shopkeep at the you know, health store that they were running in Vermont. All good things. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, he didn't like it too much that, you know, good old Bobby boy is running a health store while well, he's a real estate his, tycoon I, yeah, I in New York. wouldn't want his son owning and running a single health yeah. food store in Vermont. So he didn't like that. He basically kind of was like, no, that's not going to fly. Come back here to New York and, you know, be a part of this business. So that's what Robert does. So he and Kathy moved back to New York, and they wed shortly after. On Robert's birthday, April 12th, 1973. Like, that's so weird. Also, I don't want to share my birthday with anyone or anything. It is my (laughs) birthday. It's bad enough that P. Diddy has the same birthday as me. (laughs) So... Another weird fact about this wedding is that despite Robert's wealth, and we mean wealth, rich, rich, Kathleen's family paid for the wedding. Well, yeah, I mean, the bride's family is supposed to pay for the wedding. They're very traditional. And that's exactly what he says in an interview when asked, why did Kathleen's family pay for the wedding? And his legit response, I think verbatim was, the wife's family pays for the wedding. That was his answer. Oh, I wonder why I may have worded it that way. Yeah. So the first few years of their marriage were reportedly pretty happy. However, Robert was conservative with his money. And like you just mentioned, Kathleen preferred to live a more lavish lifestyle. Yeah, she was just money, 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 money. Yeah, not that, I mean, I never heard that she was like money hungry, but that they had the money and she wanted to spend it. Well, that's what I said. That's like the mindset, I think. When you grow up without the money. Yeah. When you have the money, it's like, I want to do this thing and we can afford to do it. Yeah. let's do it. You know, they said she's spontaneous. Yeah, she, she wanted... interest, so I want to do this, we have the money, let's go do it. I want to buy this, we have the money, I'm going to buy it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what she wanted. She wanted to live life to the fullest, and when you marry a real estate heir... Well, she heir, was Scrooge McDuck, so well, that was the problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, this is also an issue that would contribute later to their marital issues. However... They were seen at local celebrity hotspots, and they traveled frequently. They also purchased a racing horse and eventually a cottage on the lake, well, on Lake Truesdale in South Salem, New York, along with a Manhattan apartment. So, I mean, they enjoyed quite a, I mean, a, a pretty good life still, Right, I and think. I couldn't really find that, like, who was really pushing for owning all of these properties and these yeah. homes? Was Kathleen pushing for that? Because they had the money, so why not be able to do these things? Well... Or- was it Robert wanting to keep up the appearance? You know what I mean? You, you feel like he tries to portray that wealthy business person. You know what I mean? Like he tries to portray that. I, I read that he enjoyed the fact that 
you know, he could take his friends out and impress them, but didn't like the fact that they also expected him to do this. And if you, I don't know if you did, because I warned you not to, to watch the Lifetime original movie that they had on this. I think it's called, like, The Missing Wife of Robert Durst or something. Catherine McPhee McPhee plays Kathleen, but let me tell you, this movie is horrific. But the way that they portray it, now again, this is a Lifetime movie, but the way they portray the purchase of this house is that he bought it to, I guess, resolve sort of some tension that had been going on, kind of like an I'm sorry gift. And this is the house in South Salem? The lake house, yeah. So, I, I don't know, and th- that could be believable as well. I think when you have the money to do that and you can buy someone gifts to apologize, he could have done that, who knows. So, they also took a lot of drugs. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> Marijuana and cocaine being Robert and Kathy's drugs of choice, respectively. And this is backed up by both of their family and friends. Could you imagine Robert Durst on cocaine? <laughs> the way he sounds is like he's been on cocaine for a very long time, like every day. <laughs> like, whoa, if you're smoking that much pot, dude, yeah. why are you not way more chill? So, I think he is chill. Like, when he's interviewed, he's just so, like, I don't, I do not care at all. That's how he comes off well, to me. No, in the interviews, he comes across very nonchalant, but I mean just in general, like, not a chill dude. No. No, his behavior becomes more erratic as we move on. Right. Now, Kathy's brother, Jim, I had heard one interview where he was basically like, you know, after she disappeared, everyone wanted to make her into this druggie and da-da-da-da-da. I don't necessarily take that as he's not admitting that she did that, but sometimes when you find a negative thing about someone, that's all you focus on about them. So this was the 70s in New York? Everyone Everyone was was doing drugs, yeah. Anyway, their marriage ran into its first really, really big hiccup in 1976. According to Robert, he'd made it, abundantly clear that he never intended to or had the desire to have children but at thank some god. yeah <laughs> i don't want to have children either so um, thank god <laughs> and I, I feel like i kind of understand this situation so at some point that year kathleen fell pregnant she'd allegedly pushed to keep the child but Robert pushed harder, so in the end, she had an abortion. A lot of reports claim that she was forced to do this. This doesn't really have anything to do with the case, so I'll just insert my opinion here. Uh-oh. I, I don't really know how much he forced her. Obviously, I wasn't there. But being in a relationship where we've decided not to have children, I would consider it very unfair for me to all of a sudden, we're married and go, oh, well, I want kids and now you're kind of stuck. So I do understand where he's coming from especially if he's telling the truth and he did make it clear regardless of your views on abortion and that kind of thing we're not going to get into that's not (laughs) this is not that kind of show (laughs) i really couldn't find anything that said that they ever really had an agreement that they weren't yeah well they weren't gonna write it down well no but i mean like nothing really said that they ever had that conversation where they decided they weren't going to he had made it clear he didn't I didn't really find anything one way or the other if she felt very strongly about having kids or not having kids. According to the Lifetime original movie... Because we can always (laughs) count on those. They also portrayed it like she was very aware that he didn't want children. And I I probably think he's right. He didn't want children without there having ever been an agreement that we're not ever going to revisit this. I don't even know that she desired them. I couldn't find anything that said. But she could have been one of those women where you... You maybe didn't want them, but once you got pregnant, that feeling took over. Sure. You know, that's a possibility as well. Either way, I'm sure it was well, heartbreaking for the her. Same thing, where well, they yeah. think they want children, and then you know, whoever their wife or girlfriend or whatever, yeah, 
is pregnant, and then their view changes on that, too. Yeah. But most, well, I mean, all of the reports basically say that this was a bad experience for her, because regardless of their agreement, no agreement, how they felt about children beforehand, when she got pregnant, she wanted the child. And he did not. And Well, I don't think abortion is a pleasurable experience for anyone. No, no, absolutely not. So but I'm sure it was, to yeah. the abortion or not, I don't think Yeah, like, physically and emotionally trying, you right. know. But she had it. I guess nothing about children of note happened after that. So that was kind of done and over with. And I'm sure knowing his feelings, she wouldn't want to get pregnant again. So considering what, you know, he apparently forced her to do. So Kathleen had decided to become a pediatrician. She ended up becoming a nurse on her road to becoming a pediatrician. Um, She became a nurse in 1978 and used that to further her career in education to become this doctor. And she began attending the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, which I got to tell you, because when I heard that, I was like, that sounds like the fakest school ever. And then I have to remember that Albert Einstein was an actual real person with a lot of merit that people would name a school after. But, you know, he sounds so, like, it's so back in the past, and you're just like, Albert Einstein School of Medicine, that sounds so fake. But, no. But, no, very real. It is very real, and Albert Einstein is very real. So. Thanks for clearing that. (laughs) Welcome. In these interviews, like we said, Robert is very candid. He doesn't really watch what he says, and he says some not super great things about his wife. And he admits her being surprised that she had managed to get in to the school and even suggested that it may have been due to his family's contributions to the school. And there's the narcissism like, creeping back in again. Like, oh, she couldn't have done this on her yes. own merits. It must have been because my family gave a lot of money to that school. The way he made we it... Were rich. Well, yeah. But he, he made it seem like she wasn't smart enough. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, he definitely made it seem that way. Yeah. So... She's kind of, you see this a lot too, she's kind of going on getting her own life and Robert becomes increasingly possessive and volatile as time goes on. And I find that that happens a lot. The person in the relationship, I don't want to say that it's always, you know, men versus women. It could be the women that hold the power and the men. But you kind of find that one partner has most of or all of the control in the relationship. And then when the other partner starts to blossom, then, you know, the one that had the control starts to get angry, possessive. Like, they don't want them kind of bettering themselves. People are toxic. Yeah, and uh, Robert's one of those people. So she'd begun telling her family and friends about some of the physical abuse that she'd been enduring. In fact, her family had witnessed some of these outbursts. There was a highly reported hair-pulling incident where they'd gone to dinner, and he was asking Kathleen to get up off a chair or a couch or something, and I guess she just didn't the first time he asked, so he walked right in there and yanked her by her hair and took her out. And if you're willing to do that in public... Yeah, and, and, What's going on behind closed doors? And Robert later admits a, a lot in the jinx that you see. And in like he interviews later for bonus footage for a movie that's made that we'll get to in part two. <laughs> that basically he did he did treat Kathleen poorly. That he treated her family poorly. I think when asked if he could say anything to Kathleen or do anything to Kathleen if she were here, is you know that he would have treated her better. So sure. yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. 
Yeah, I guess. Yeah, so he, he admits to a lot of the mistreatment of Kathy. Um, but eventually, the continued physical abuse, coupled with the lifestyle differences that we talked about before, such as like you know, wanting to live wealthy, the abortion, I believe, had a lot to do with her feelings and kind of twisted her. And he says later, too, that after that incident, the dynamic changed, understandably. Mm-hmm. So, but all of this added up together. It became too much for Kathleen to handle. So she secured an attorney, but she did not file for divorce. It's alleged that she asked Robert for a $250,000 settlement and a divorce. He didn't agree to the settlement and in turn cut her off from his credit cards, removed her name from their joint accounts. They're still married, but removed her name from the accounts and he stopped paying for her medical school tuition on the advice of his attorney, which it's a crappy thing to do, but if you know that she's filing and is going to go after your money or something like that, I can understand why an attorney would advise you to do that. Sure, you can understand why the attorney would advise you to do it, but it don't look good. Yeah. I'm not going to pass judgment on the divorce situation as far as like him taking those things away from her, but what happens afterwards, it don't look good. <laughs> <laughs> so even after all of this is going on, uh, the, the abuse, the money, the talks about divorce, the relationship continues despite the warnings and pleas from her friends and family to leave him, which now brings us to the night of January 31st, 1982. Yeah, so we're talking about 10 years after they met. Mm -hmm. So not even 10 years after they've been married, all of that stuff that we've just been talking about, all of those things are happening in less than a decade. Yeah, well, it doesn't happen overnight. This is stuff that was going on for years. Right. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, we... Think about how much we already just talked about. All of the problems in this marriage, all of these things going on, they haven't even known each other. For 10 years, For 10 years. So on January 31st, 1982, it was a cold, icy, and rainy day. Keep that in mind. (laughs) Yeah, I only bring that up because that comes into play. So Kathleen called her close friend, Gilberta Najami, and asked if she could come over to talk to her. And even though Gilberta was hosting a dinner party... She agreed. She said, yeah, sure, come on over. So Kathleen shows up to Gilberta's home underdressed and visibly distressed. Which is unlike her. And Super unlike her. And did you read the... So I know you watched the episode of Mugshots. Mm-hmm. And this Gilberta woman is interviewed a lot throughout this particular show. Out of her own mouth, that's the way she tells the story. Right. But in nearly every article you read, the Wikipedia page, all these newspaper things say that she just showed up out of the blue for no reason. Right. And that's that's not no, correct. You have it right from the Yeah, right from the mouth. source, yeah. It's just so weird that you have it from the source, but they still report it wrong. Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so while she's at Gilberta's home, Robert calls the house multiple times. As and a Gilberta, toxic man, yeah, exactly. dinner, or woman, just does. Blowing yeah. the phone up. Gilberta notes that he was, quote, audibly upset, and that he demanded, demanded yeah. that Kathleen came home. Well, and if she can hear him through the phone, right. <laughs> yeah, he's clearly angry. So, Gilberta recalls that it was about 7.15 when Kathleen leaves, but she leaves with some parting words, and she says to her, promise me. If something happens to me tonight, you'll check it out. I'm afraid of what Bobby might do. Well, that sounds pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Everything seems fine. So I feel like I wouldn't let my friend leave. I'd be like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, come back inside. (laughs) I agree. Yeah. So this, though, isn't the first time that Kathy has said things like this to Mm -hmm. her friends. 
This is just the last time she says something right. like this. So uh, a neighbor recalls Kathleen looking disheveled and scared, saying to her, if anything happens to me, suspect foul play. Okay. And another friend, Eleanor, recalls a conversation where Kathy said, if anything ever happens to me, don't let Bobby get away with it. And she made Eleanor promise. Eleanor talks about this in mm. a couple of the, you know, these series you know, where they where they do interviews with Kathy's friends. And Eleanor says, I promised her that I was not going to let Bobby get away with it. Mm-hmm. And I keep my promises. And that's why she appears in everything oh, on yeah. this case. Her friends were are still very dedicated well, we've talked to about her. this several yeah. times. Best friends are the rock stars in these things. Oh, yeah. They go above and beyond. So... Uh, the following evening, so now February 1st, Gilberta sat waiting at a restaurant for dinner with mm-hmm. Kathy yeah. that they had planned. But Kathy never shows up. Surprise. Yeah. So Kathy then is unreachable for several days. And obviously, friends and family getting a little worried. It yeah. don't look good. Yeah. I wonder, though, I, I don't want to place any blame on Gilberta. She seems like a very good friend. But after hearing that, I would probably at least call the very next morning and, you know, did well, you mean, survive the night? Is everything okay? I, I mean, I could understand yeah. that. But we're also talking about a different time when you couldn't, like, text or call a cell phone. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we weren't as instantly accessible 24 hours a day as we are now. Yeah. And I still think even, yeah. For dinner the following night. Yeah. So like you said, we don't want to put a lot of blame on her, and I can kind of understand that thinking mm-hmm. at that time. I think even now, though, people are scared to jump the gun. You don't want to be embarrassed, sure. you know, by getting all worked up over, you know. So anyway, so when she can't be reached for several days, her friends drive over to the lake house mm-hmm. in South Salem, and they find garbage bags with Kathy's belongings inside. Obviously, throws them into a panic. So Gilberta throws a rock at the window and then goes inside, but they don't find Kathy. So, (laughs) right. So then she calls the police, but the police don't even come out. Great work. Although I find it odd, though. You you literally just threw a rock at someone else's house. Right. And then you call the police to come to it. Yeah. I understand her panic. Right. I would probably do the same thing if, like, you went missing and be like, no, I'm going to get into this house, but still. So after Kathleen had been gone for five Days, Robert finally decided to report his wife missing. And in his statement to police, he said that Kathy had returned home from Gilberta's home. Uh, the two argued. Kathy sat down and had dinner and a bottle of wine. And then he... Oh, okay. That pairs well with wine. Yeah. He says that he drove her to the Katona station so that she could take the 915 train to Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Then he spoke with her on the phone from the lake house after she'd arrived at their Manhattan apartment. Right. Gilberta and another friend, Eleanor, who we've already mentioned, uh, had gone to the same Sunday train, and they spent the night questioning and showing Kathy's picture to regular riders. Yeah, like the the habitual ones. Yeah, the people that are always on that train. Always on the 915, yeah. And they came to the conclusion that she was not on that train. On January 31st. So they've already done more police work than the police. Yeah. Not a sure thing, but a pretty good bet, you know. Right. Yeah, it's very unlikely that these people who ride habitually every Sunday night, that no one has seen her, doesn't look good. No, red flag. 
So it was also discovered that Robert was having a long-term affair with Prudence Farrow, who is the sister of actress Mia Farrow, and also the muse behind the Beatles song, Dear Prudence, which I only mention... (laughs) (laughs) But it's on the White Album, which is their most popular album, I guess. I don't know. I like the Beatles, but I don't know, like, every song... Well, I was going to say, I'm only even mentioning it because you're a fan of the Beatles. And then you're like, I've never even heard that song. Yeah, I've never heard it. I mean, I'm going to listen to it now. (sighs) So the affair ended not long after Kathy's disappearance. But it wasn't something that he hid. He had had several affairs during the marriage. And again, they hadn't even known each other for 10 years. And now it went a little bit after her disappearance. His affair with her was like three years long. Hmm. So you think about it, they've been together for 10 years. At least three of those years. Yeah. Almost he's with another woman. Because he's not a good dude. However, it is also believed that Kathy had her own affairs as well. Yeah. That's also portrayed in a Lifetime movie. So maybe. Oh, now I have to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Although the circumstances surrounding her disappearance were questionable... There was no real evidence that Robert was involved. Yeah. At least no physical evidence at all. Right. One detective even says that many men that feel that their wives had left them are quick to toss out their spouse's personal effects, saying that they are, quote, a dime a dozen. Mm-hmm. We saw that with the Michelle Harris case. Yeah, but toxic masculinity they're I mean, a dime think, a dozen not that oh i don't think the i think the officer is right in, in saying this that not not he wasn't saying that the women are a dime a dozen he's saying that these men who are getting rid of their wife's things those are a dime a dozen that that robert didn't stick out to him for that particular item i guess so i don't know just seems why would a detective go on the record saying that i don't know well, anyway this is a little bit of an old documentary yeah where he says that yeah So, Robert also explained that living apart or not hearing from Kathy was not unusual, given the high demand of her job and her schooling. Which, I'll give you that. I think it is believable, yeah. She's in medical school. Her last year at that. Right. She's in her last year of medical school. And he's a real estate tycoon. They have various homes, and she's studying, and he's sleeping around with Mia Farrow's sister. I mean, And she may be sleeping around, so they're not in constant contact. And we've already said... In this period, yeah, it wasn't 24 hours a day contact like we have now. So it's not odd that you may go, you know, when people are busy, you go even longer without yeah, hearing from them. Someone a text and be like, hey, I'm going here, now I'm going here. Right. Plus, we've already established that their relationship was not good. So I find it very believable that neither one of them really cared sure. who the other person was. Yeah. And topping that all off, uh, they had received word that Kathy had been spotted leaving her apartment in Manhattan by an employee of the building. And the dean of the university had received a call from Kathy explaining that she would not be in class for a while. Yeah, she was sick or something, I guess. Right. Unfortunately, they didn't really investigate these leads or these reports at the time, and they just kind of took all of that at face value. And then it later comes out that the employee had only seen a woman from behind and had never seen her face that's so weird like and that comes into play a little bit more later some stuff we find out but yeah it just seems so weird to me like i wouldn't i wouldn't tell someone that i saw someone especially someone they think is missing if i wasn't sure if you hadn't seen their face i mean i might let them know but i would let them know right away you know well i saw someone that i mean it could have been her but i didn't see their face right well i don't think though you don't really think 
you know, like, if they've seen her a lot, they know her clothing, the way that she dresses and everything. Right. I can understand why it's like, well, yeah, I saw her because that's how she dresses. I saw this person wearing her clothes. Right. So, I don't know. I mean, still, the police should have looked more into it. I don't really fault the, uh, probably a doorman, right, for the I building. Think, I think it was, like, the the bellhop or something like that. For yeah. saying something like that. I don't know. Just, it's odd, though. The call to the dean was also unusual because why would a student be mm. calling the dean of the instead of their instructor Yeah, if they're going to be missing class? Yeah, and the person who like brings this up is Eleanor, who was a fellow student with her in right. class. Yeah, and she's like, why would we call the instructor when we're going to be out? Not the dean of the school. Right. Like, and then it comes out that the call that Robert claimed that he had with Kathy when he was at the lake house and she was yeah. at the apartment might not have happened at all mm-hmm. because phone records show that the Durst organization had received two collect phone calls that night from Shipbottom, New Jersey. So that's interesting because Robert has admitted that he frequently made collect calls so that his father <laughs> would have to pay for them. Which side note is really funny. Yeah. <laughs> And considering his his treatment and things like that, I mean, I don't blame the guy. That's true. Though he did change his story about the phone call, saying that he made the call from a payphone while he was walking the dog. Yeah. But the nearest payphone was three miles away. Yeah. And in case you have forgotten, at the top of this, I specifically pointed out that it was an icy, rainy night. Yeah, it's January 31st in mm-hmm. New York. And not only that, so if she caught the 915 and the phone call happens around what, 11 or 11.15 or something like that, I guess he said. Yeah, that time frame. Who was walking their dog three miles away to a payphone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it wouldn't be the weirdest thing Robert Durst has done. It probably also but wouldn't be the still... weirdest thing in New York. That's true. <laughs> I mean, Fair enough. You've been there. You've been. <laughs> <laughs> However, it would be years before Kathy's case is reopened. Right. Now, in the meantime, there's some stuff going on. Seymour Durst. The father, The yeah. father. Names Douglas Durst. The brother that we've already mentioned multiple times yeah, Robert never younger, got along with. The younger brother. Right. His younger brother. And so Seymour names Douglas as the next chairman of the Durst organization. Mm. Now, usually, that would go to the oldest son when you have a family business that's being passed down. Yeah. So, this adds to an already unhealthy, as we've mentioned, (laughs) sibling rivalry, and really solidified the fact that Robert Durst is the black sheep of the the Durst Durst family. family, He did put up a fight for a greater share in the company and wound up receiving $2 million from a trust every year, which, like, how do I get that gig? I know, right? Um, I'll be the black sheep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can hate me. Talk all the crap you want about me. I'll take $2 million a year. Oh, my God. <clears throat> Side Golden Girls reference. When uh. Sophia goes, can I be pothead, Stan? <laughs> when Dorothy won't accept the money. That's how I feel. I'll take $2 million a year. <sighs> can I be the black sheep, please? <laughs> Eventually, in 2006, the brothers do reach a settlement that Robert will give up any and all claims mm-hmm. to the Durst organization in exchange for a payout. A measly payout. Of $65 million. <laughs> <laughs> he would also continue to work in real estate, and he still owned several properties, earning millions yeah. without the Durst organization. Yeah, without the settlement, without the annual yep. trust. Yeah. He's uh, still a rich dude. Now, jumping back to 1999, Robert Durst leaves New York... 
after Douglas is given control of the company, mm-hmm. and he's granted a divorce from Kathy, citing spousal abandonment. Yeah. Then, in 1999, the police also reopened the case because they received a tip from an inmate yeah, yeah. hoping to make a deal. As but, you do when right. you're an inmate. <laughs> but the tip ended up being a dead end. Yeah. Though one of the investigators decided to make the drive from Gilberta's home in Connecticut. Yeah, the, that's where she was the evening Where she started the evening yeah, yeah, yeah. to the lake house in South Salem. He waited there, you know, to account for the time, Mm -hmm. then left again for the train station. And he concluded that with the timeline given by both Robert and Gilberta, Mm -hmm. it was highly unlikely that Kathy would have been able to return home, eat, drink the bottle of wine, prepare her things, and make it to that train at 9.15. Even if the train station were close, considering she left her friend's house, so even if her friend was lived right away... That's still only two hours, though, that you have to drive home, get your things packed, eat, argue with your husband, and then be driven to the train station. It seems like just a lot in general. So, obviously, this was just kind of an informal test, but it was enough to keep the interest of this investigator. So, the police finally searched that lake house, and they also searched the lake, as you do. Yeah. um, Which had never been done when Kathy first disappeared. Yeah, I I made a special note because I'm sitting here listening to this and I'm like, okay, someone is missing. Why not at the very least, would you not ask someone, hey, can we can we search your home? That might even give you an indication as to whether or not someone's being shady. Right. Like, if, you know, if someone in my family went missing and a police officer walked to my door and was like, you know, your spouse is missing, can we search your home? And I had nothing to hide, I'd be like, Take all the evidence you need. Like, <laughs> it just seems odd that they didn't they didn't do that. And had Robert yeah. declined, you know, I mean, that's another piece of the puzzle that you could add on to him if they were to build a case. Seems so weird. Well, and I, I wonder, though, like, I could, you know, we found, obviously, that they didn't search the home mm. and the lake when she disappeared, but did they ask him? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, but I think Because they may not have even asked him. That is something, though. Uh, of course, being interviewed, that the police would have said. that That's something that the police would have used against him, saying, we asked him and he declined. But, but I, I didn't hear anybody ever say, we asked to search it and he told us no. So it's almost yeah, like that, they never that even makes asked. Believe they didn't ask ever. Right. So I wonder, though, I mean, he's a really rich man, you know, and I'm not saying that he paid anyone off or anything, but I think that sometimes you get investigators or the higher-ups like we discussed before in the Zahao case where mm-hmm. they tend to stay away from those rich, powerful people. They don't want to ruffle any feathers. Right. You know, like... Especially unnecessarily yeah. until you have some evidence that points you in that direction. Yeah. And by, by, by saying that, I typically mean like the higher-ups that are giving the orders, not the investigators that are in the nitty-gritty right. that are trying to do their job. Right. Yeah. That's so, just a, a theory. The police publicly announced in November 2000 that the case has been reopened. And that is where we're going to leave it for now. Mm-hmm. Because we've decided we want to talk about Kathy's disappearance right. on its own. Because there's a lot more stuff that's going to be coming mm-hmm. in part two. And they're, it's going to tie in. Yeah. You know, everything's yeah, kind things. of intertwined. Mm-hmm. And so we may have different opinions mm-hmm. next week after we lay everything else out. But right yeah. now, we just want to look at this. So and this, I will let you start ends, us off. Yeah. So this ends the description part of part one of this case. Right. Um, so 
although we have already researched and know a lot of information afterwards, we're not allowed to use that. Just as if we were jurors and we can't use stuff we'd heard in the media. We can only use what's being presented to us, like, in court. So given this information, you know, oh, and, and side note, Robert Durst was never, still has never been charged with Kathleen's disappearance, murder, nothing. Right. Never. To this day. Lots of speculation. So, technically. No action. This is still unsolved and she is missing, not dead. Mm-hmm. She's a missing person. Now, do they have that active though? I don't know. Because I couldn't find anything. Um, you know, like when we talked about Michelle and Cal Harris, we had a number that we could give where oh, you could call right, if you had information yeah. and I couldn't I, find that here. I think everyone pretty much agrees that she's dead. Why she hasn't been declared dead, I'm not sure. Or maybe she has and I missed that in my notes. I didn't see it either. So, some other things that we didn't mention because this is speculative. So, I wanted to bring this up. My favorite. (laughs) Now, now because we're not going to be actual type of jurors in this case, so we can take in all of this hearsay information because there is no trial. There is no nothing. But just given what we know at the end of this, there's another tidbit that the friend, his best friend that we had mentioned, Susan Berman, that he met at UCLA, the dean took a call from a female that he believed to be Kathy, which is why it was credible at the time. But there are people that are interviewed about Susan Berman later on saying they were, Susan and Robert, were the type of friends where she may have called. Sure. That was, and that was very interesting to me. And now we have tiptoed as that. close to introducing well, no, stuff not. about Susan Berman <laughs> yeah. as we're going to. But this doesn't pertain to that. This <clears throat> pertains to, this, this is pertaining to Kathleen's case. Right. And but um, there's a lot more stuff but, with Susan Berman and the other. Yeah. But that you ties would think in. though, so but you would think that well if it was a woman that called, you would think it was Kathleen. It seems credible. But then when you have people that are friends with Robert and Susan going, I wouldn't put it past them to have made this call that kind of makes you think whether or not it was Kathleen. Well yeah, and just to further that a little bit, when they talk to the dean the dean basically says, well, I only thought it was Kathy because they said, this is Kathy Durst. Yeah. Well, he's the dean. He probably doesn't right. even know who she is, you know? I don't know how big the school is, but I highly doubt. And plus, he's probably just getting a call and going, you're sick? Great. I don't care. You know? <laughs> yeah. Why are you calling me? <laughs> yeah. So. All right. So I have to say, though, with what we've got so far. Right. Although I do believe she's gone missing. He says she came back to this lake house. There should have been a search. There should have been a search. They should have searched the lake. Like, all of those things should have been done. However, with that not having been done, and what they have here, I understand why this didn't move further. Mm. My opinions, I guess. It certainly seems as though Robert had motive. I in no way, shape, or form am trying to place any blame on Kathleen or anything like that. However, it seemed as though she may have been getting a little greedy is not the word I want to use, but she was clearly going after his money. Well, based on what the attorney advises him to do. Yeah. And the settlement that was asked for and all that, it does seem like money started to play much Mm -hmm. more of a factor, even though it always had because of the mm -hmm. difference in their lifestyles. And so I use this as kind of like a, how do I put this? So that gives Robert the motive But it also makes me believe that Kathleen wouldn't... That's another factor I use saying that Kathleen wouldn't have left on her own. She wanted money. She wasn't going to leave with no money. Sure. You know, that's what... It seemed like that's what she was interested in. And 
I mean, I could see Robert thinking she was going to take him for he had a lot of money and she was going after it. And he's the one who earned that money. Yeah, but we can't just stick to either he did it or she left on her own. She's a young, attractive woman in the 80s in New York traveling by train at 915 on a Sunday night. And I'm not victim blaming. I'm just saying not the safest place to be. At that time. Exactly. When you're a young, attractive woman. And it's unfortunate that we even have to think that way. Mm-hmm. But that's just the state of affairs. Well, yeah. So you either have... You have three possibilities. Robert did it. He killed her. I mean, because really, yeah. He killed her. She left of her own accord. Or she has been taken forcefully, killed, not killed, been sold into whatever. Someone else did something to right. her. So it was Robert. It was someone else. Or Kathleen left on her own. But, well, I think we r- can rule out, though, yeah, that I, she left on her own. I don't think she would have left on her own. Uh, and I hate to say, but specifically be- because of the money thing. And she right. already had so much invested in her education. Um, right. But I also and leave. use that motive, the money that would have kept her there, as the motive that Robert would have wanted to use. Like, that was his motive for doing something to her. So I do believe he has motive. I don't necessarily think that that makes him guilty but it does give him a motive right oh no i'd absolutely agree with that but he has a reason yeah for sure to want to do something like this Mm -hmm. and he seems like the type of person who could Mm -hmm. act on that Mm -hmm. so oh and another thing of note is that he had what was it it was a hundred thousand dollar reward right for tips leading you know to finding kathleen Mm -hmm. and then he drops the reward to i think was it fifteen thousand? it was something really low it was less than half of the original reward right and one investigator was basically saying like well you typically see people when they're getting you know panicked and they want to find this person they're going to offer more reward Mm -hmm. and robert durst could certainly afford to up the reward so the fact that he dropped it crappy but not again of his guilt not a good dude no he's an icky icky guy and he clearly wanted control of his money, and he lived very frugally. So with, I actually am not surprised by this at all. Well, and then I also see, you know, because you can make the argument, well, why is he going to offer that much money for people to give tips if he had something to do with it? Just on the off chance that someone saw something. Yeah. Right? But then, did he do that because he wanted people to look at it that way? Yeah. He was confident nobody had seen anything, so he's going to throw a bunch of money out there because mm-hmm. that's going to make people look in the other direction. Mm-hmm. I lean towards Robert did this. Well, when you have friends and neighbors on multiple occasions telling you, she said, if something happens to me, he did it. Or if something happens to me, suspect foul play. Right. How do you not? Well, and he admits to the physical abuse and things like that. So he clearly has it in him to do, to harm her. He has harmed her. Right. I lean towards, we, I mean, I think we both agree she didn't leave of her own accord. I don't, I don't right. see that. Right, yeah, we're ruling that, that out. Second. And I'm not necessarily ruling out that someone else could have done something to her, but I do lean towards Robert, I have to say, just because of all of the other things. The timeline to get to the train, I don't think is good. His changing of the story about making the call from the payphone rather than the apartment when she arrived. Well, rather from the, the lake the cottage, house. Right. Yeah. When she arrived at the Manhattan apartment when she got off the train, if that's true, right? then she wasn't taken off the train. If what if the story he's telling is true, she was not abducted when she was walking to her apartment. Right. She would have been fine. Well, I mean, unless someone broke into her home type of thing, but there, no one's ever said any evidence of that. Right. 
Yeah, and that's the other thing. As I was going to say, there's no other suspect, Mm -hmm. which also then points you back in the direction of Robert Durst. Yeah. And it's not that... So, like, the fact that he put her items in garbage bags pretty much immediately. Now, again, you can excuse all of these things separately, but when you put all of these pieces together, the puzzle is Robert Durst. Mm -hmm. But But, there's not enough to have moved forward with it at this point because, once again, an investigation is not handled properly. They don't secure what they needed to secure. They don't mm-hmm. search what they need to search. They didn't investigate these tips and things like the doorman that claims that he saw her. Like, these things were not followed up with properly. But, yeah, but I I don't think... I mean, yeah, it's a... He looks pretty bad, but I don't see This enough. is starting to look bad. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't... I don't see reason enough to even charge him. Unfortunately. Yeah, I just... I don't... And I certainly not to convict him, but I, right. even, I couldn't even see them charging him with this at this point in time, given what we know. It's unfortunate. I think that in this case, he's someone that got away with killing his wife. Yeah. Because as we mentioned, mm-hmm. never been charged or tried for it. Mm-hmm. I will say, I do not think that this was premeditated. Well, no, I mean, he admits that they yeah. had an argument. Had so it was probably heat of the moment. And uh, the argument probably went too far. And well, it seems like most of their arguments of went too far. Body, yeah. Um, but I don't think that this was... Everyone says that he's just this cool, calculated guy who thinks everything through. I don't think so. I think this would have been the... He had nothing in his past to suggest that he was that type, I suppose. To, That's like, sit and plan out. and... Mm-hmm. Now, um, we'll get more into this. I want to bring this point back up um, in the next episode. But I want to say this now as well. This and the subsequent crimes he's alleged to have committed... They label Robert Durst as a serial killer. Mm-hmm. And a serial killer is basically you have to kill three or more people, not at once, but after a certain amount of time goes by. In a series? Thing. In a series, yeah. But I don't think so. His motives are not like that of a serial killer. These are intertwined. Serial killers usually kill people they don't know. It's usually sexually motivated. Uh, Well, I mean, that's true. But usually with serial killers, when you look at the first few victims, and again, not true in all cases, but when you look at the first few victims, there's some type of connection because that's how it starts. But they're not all intertwined with each other. And it almost seems as we're going on with his crimes that... It's to cover things. It, it seems like a cover. He's not a serial killer. I don't start giving things there. away. No. But I mean, do you agree with that? I don't. I don't. I would never classify. I'm as not going to say killer. whether or not I agree with that because I want them to tune in next week <laughs> <laughs> to see if anything we talk about next week changes anything about yeah. what we think now. So, what are your final thoughts on this then? I understand why it didn't move any further than this at this point. Mm-hmm. But do you think at this point that he did do it? Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was absolute. In my mind, I think that he was involved. Um, but there's just no there there. Mm-hmm. You can't really do it. And again, if they had done the search of the lake house, who knows? They may have been able to turn something up. Mm-hmm. And then we'd be having a completely different conversation right now. Yeah. But they didn't search the lake house. Yeah. Well, I mean, we run into these kinds of problems in every case that we talk about. I know. That's why, yeah, these people don't get caught. So, yeah. So, currently, we believe that... Robert Durst did kill his wife, but unfortunately, we don't believe that there was enough to charge him with. And that's going to end Kathleen's case for kind of. now. Yeah. <laughs> for now. 
But tune in next week because the story gets weirder. Yeah. The so, story gets way, <laughs> way, way, way weirder, guys. So And plenty more debate. Oh yeah. And including we're gonna bring Kathleen stuff back with Kathleen. Yeah. So join us next week for part two in the saga of Robert Durst. A close friend and a reclusive neighbor both die under suspicious circumstances. Did Durst commit two more murders to keep what happened to Kathleen a secret? Do these deaths change our opinions of what became of Kathleen? Will our legal representative, Battlecat, finally pull the plug on our show? <laughs> Find out next week on Allegedly. Bye, Bye guys. guys.